welcome to the Top Order podcast. Drama, controversy, rain, retirements, baseball heroes, photos with the urn, and even some cricket. We're going to talk this fifth and final test match of a fascinating and scintillating Ashes series. It's all in the record books now. We're going to have all of that coming up and more um, on the show. Stay tuned. Well, boys, I'm coming to you live from Fiji. I've yeah got a couple of uh, rum-based cocktails inside me, and uh, yeah, feeling pretty relaxed on my on my holidays. I think it's only going to be fair, Baldy, if we hand over to our neutral mediator for this wrap-up. As we we do come to the end of look, I, I think what we'll all agree has been an absolutely crackerjack series. Lots of talking points on the field. Lots of talking points off the field. We've got. A couple of resigna- uh, resignations, retirements from the um, England side after this test match as well. And I guess we might talk about whether or not there's any Australians other than David Warner that might follow in those footsteps as the dust settles on Qantas Flight 1 back to Sydney um, over the next couple of days. But um, Lippy, I'll probably hand over to you and you can, can kind of compare this evening's uh, this evening's show. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. We're getting, uh, yeah, like like you said, we're getting uh, a, a, li- a bit of live action from Fiji. Must be nice over there, us sitting here in Auckland, me in my garage. So uh, yeah, much much nicer surroundings for you. And and I think you're spot on. And that yeah, it's been a um, a really interesting series. I, I think f- for sure. And and um, we'll talk about it in more detail. I think we've seen some superb cricket. We've seen some pretty average cricket at times, and probably some boring cricket as well. Um, but from a neutral point of view, there's been so many talking points and, uh, you know, I, I guess probably I, I would like to start with Stuart Broad, but I think before we do that, I, I think we basically just want to touch base with both of you because I think it's been quite an emotionally draining, uh, I'm sure, for, for the English and for the Australian fans. And, and I think possibly for you, Baldy, because the way England plays their cricket now, the momentum changes and it can just sort of happen quite quickly as we talked a little bit about last week. So, I mean, is part of you kind of glad this is over? You're happy you can get some sleep again? Or are you going to get to 10 10 p.m. tomorrow night and go, oh, what am I supposed to do with myself now? Uh, There is a a fair amount of relief that the series is over, I think, Uh, particularly as Australia have... Well, it's been a series of two halves, really, hasn't it? I mean, Australia up 2-0 and then England fought back to equal the series 2 all in the end. Uh, with that victory at the Oval. And really, let's let's open the microphone up shortly to Adam to to bask in the glory of that Oval Test victory because that's what we've got to do um, at the conclusion of, of each match. And we've done that throughout the series. So it's only fair that Adam gets a turn to do that. But absolutely, there's a little bit of relief. Um, it's a very melancholy, maudlin kind of feeling, I think, for many Australians. Even though Australia have retained the urn, it's not the way in which Australia would normally want to see that done uh, by their team and not normally the way that we would have gone about our business. So that's a real departure from what has been a very um, rusted-on way of playing cricket for the last 40 years. And it's changed markedly in this series. Part of that has been forced by some tremendous play by England and part of that is Australia's response to how are we going to counter, you know, Joe Root reverse ramping balls in the beginning of day one for six over third slip. I mean, how do you how do you counter a game plan like that? And we'll come on to that in the series. But uh, yes, absolutely relief. The trophy will um, make its way to Australia in spirit. 
um, and maybe maybe only just in spirit because obviously it stays at Lords in the um, in the in the trophy cabinet there for posterity. But Bigsy, over to you, mate. I mean, my feelings are very much one of relief and and almost deflation. How are you feeling at the conclusion of this test at the Oval? Yeah, so sort of to be to be honest, Bordy, a little bit of relief as well. Um, look, if I can just plead the Englishman's case here, whilst this victory at the Oval was fantastic, um, it wasn't without its drama. You know, a great opening partnership from Osman Khawaja and David Warner. Um, I, I think the rain really helped England on day four. I think if that had carried on, we could have been talking about a very, very different day five, even um, even with the ball change, which we'll probably come on to. Um, but I think almost, yeah, it is a little bit of relief from, from this end for the simple reason that literally the script was written that England were going to win the series um, from the start with, with Baz Ball. We went 2-0 down and then literally it's felt like every moment has been um, that sort of pressure, critical. You know, it's often a cliche, this, you know, first hour is important. You know, the hour after tea is important. The hour after lunch is important. This 20 minutes is really important in test cricket. And it just seems as if every single one of those things has been bloody imperative for England if they were going to pull off, a, you know, a really, really unlikely scenario coming off two defeats at Edgebaston and Lords. Um, so look, I, I definitely think there's a little bit of relief. There's also a little bit of elation, I think, from, um, I think, being in a position to, you know, to say. And the Ashes is one of those series where, I think we, you know, we have a similar rules with other trophies around the world, but the Ashes is probably the most famous one in terms of the holders of the trophy only have to retain them, and the, you know, the the, uh, the non-holders have to win the series in order to regain them. So that's been a vernacular that's obviously been clear throughout the course of the series. So look, great to get to to two two. Um, I, I also would just kind of throw back probably that in a way I think Australia would in in a way, and this is this will sound really really weird. They would have probably rather that test match um, at Old Trafford had come to a conclusion because then there wouldn't be this griping in the press. I think that you know I know is probably Baldy going to get your you know your triggers up. So um, yeah, I hope we've got someone on hand in the background for an intervention potentially in your house. Um, but yeah, I think almost we've seen those five test matches come to the inevitable results that England style of cricket is going to present now. You know that there aren't going to be too many draws unless weather's involved. Um, yeah, that would have probably just given us a bit of a cleaner narrative um, one way or the other. Um, and I think obviously, you know, those kind of the butterfly effects, who knows what would have happened if that had have been the case. England, you know, came into this game do or die. They came in with a guy that decided to retire at 8.30 on day two. Uh, they came in with a spinner who pulled his groin and perhaps wouldn't have bowled, you know, to protect his, you know, his IPL contract or his franchise stuff if if he hadn't have had to really do so. So we, we don't know what the effect that would have been um, on, you know, on this uh, on, on this test match. But yeah, look, bloody happy and, and really happy for two or three of the guys in that um, England side. Zach Crawley came in under a massive amount of pressure. Um, uh, yeah, and I think we were, yeah, we were talking off air. He's just been pipped at the top of the run charts, um, I think by 16 runs or something like that. But Osman Khawaja, 496 runs. Uh, Crawley's got uh, 480 runs at a strike rate um, that, that, you know, beggars belief in this sort of modern, uh, yeah, modern sort of uh, modern era, um, it, or, or even in this modern era, I should say. Uh, so, yeah, look, really, really pleased for, for two or three of the guys. And I'm sure we'll come on to that as we come throughout the course of the, the podcast. Yeah, well, look, you said you said storyline, script, narrative, all there. I, I think the one to start with is, is Stuart Broad, isn't it? Because the thing is that we don't always kind of get to talk about fairy tales. Often we're on here talking about 
our frustrations or debating a selection decision. But I feel like today was uh, fairly strong evidence that the cricket gods, they do exist. And that, you know, when you speak in the language of the Bales, they listen. And uh, and we've got to celebrate that because, yeah, honestly, I mean, I feel watching watching Broad in this test and, you know, now that he's retired and as soon, basically as soon as that announcement came, I started to feel really silly myself because listeners to long time listeners to the show will know that we did that we've been doing this Hall of Fame series and we did this uh, an episode basically that uh, ended up putting Stuart Broad and uh, Kagiso Rabada very very close and uh, I I was on the the Rabada side I I will admit that now and and I've taken a I think I've taken a massive L there because. In fairness to me, at that time, it was you know about 18 months ago, Stuart Broad seemed like he was phasing out of the England side. He was being left out of teams. That England side was absolutely terrible. They were losing all their games. And Kagiso Rabada had one of the best strike rates of all time. It felt, felt like he was on the rise. You think about that now. Stuart Broad has been fantastic basically since that time. He's continued to be a really valuable member of the side. And, you know, despite not winning the World Test Championship, not retaining or not winning the Ashes, this side has performed one of the most remarkable turnarounds that I can remember. And you can probably make a case that they've been the best Test team over the past 12 months, even though they haven't had those those things. You know, I'm not necessarily saying you'd win that case, but you'd have, you'd have a case and you could make it and people would listen. And then you look at Rabada and we're in a situation where he might not even play the Test Series down here in New Zealand because South Africa's boards prioritise domestic cricket. The, the trajectory that he was on in terms of his Test career looks on in, incredibly shaky ground. And, you know, despite all his stats, for reasons that are mainly out of control, his control, like England plays way more Test cricket than South Africa. Those matches are given a bigger limelight around the world. But I'm thinking as a neutral, I, I might look back on his career in 10 years' time and not be able to recall a single spell from his test career. And and you look at uh, Broad, he's he's just got so many moments of test cricket. And today, and performance, you know, the today when he's flicking those bales over earlier in the test, and then he does it again today and picks up Murphy next ball. I mean, it, it's honestly just fantastic. So, you know, I think, Binksy, we probably should hand back to you on mainly just Maybe you just give us a few minutes on on what Broad has meant, I guess, to English cricket, because I think he probably deserves that at, at this point in the pod. Yeah, look, absolutely. I think we go back to 2005. He was a young boy uh, making his way, you know, in and around the Leicestershire staff at that point. He'd been in, he'd been an opening batsman, actually, um, for a period of time. And then I think, you know, put, put on uh, not only a couple of yards of pace, but four or five inches as well. And, 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 and almost sort of overnight, Turned into a, you know, turned into a, a pretty decent, a decent seamer. You know, if you kind of think about my first memory, is he got crunched for six sixes by Yuvraj Singh, you know, um, in a white ball game, and you, you know that's not the kind of memory that you probably want. But I, I think that when you then allude to those big moments, there's been spells against India, there's been spells against South Africa, and there's been multiple spells against Australia that we, you know, we'll talk about um, whether it's the eight fifteen, eight for fifteen at Trent Bridge. Um, even you know the couple of wickets today, which really you know changed a little bit of the momentum in that that game. I, I think you know as much as England players love to hate David Warner, I think or England fans I should say love to hate David Warner. I think that 
Broad's played that role really well for the Australian fans and media as well. That uh, that nick to slip where you know they stopped naming his name in I think one of the Brisbane newspapers. He's just got that sort of villainous quality, which you know all of us have played a pretty decent amount of club cricket. You love that kind of prick in your dressing room, and you hate him when you're in the other dressing room. Um, and and that's the biggest compliment I think I can you know I can pay him. And I think if you look at some of the plaudits that have come out on both sides of the media, Australian and English media, after um, and even during this Test match to to an extent, I think you know I think they've talked about you know it, again the big cliche is someone that you know has got that little bit of white line fever, but you you know you want a glass of red wine or a beer with him after. Um, after the game and that bail stuff is just genius I'd actually seen that for the first time this year in club cricket one of our younger lads doing it and I was like I've never seen that before in my uh, my career so um, yeah, obviously it had no impact whatsoever um, but even if it just wound up Marnus or Ricky or anybody just a little bit um, yeah it was it was well um, it was well worth it but look I'd be interested to get Baldy's views on on broad and you know whether you know whether or not he buys into that or whether he kind of goes well yeah he's got 150 ashes wickets but he's played a lot of ashes test matches and he's you know his record doesn't stack up to some of our great seamers so shut mm. up um no my my opinion on Stuart broad has changed uh, 180 degrees in the last 24 hours since his retirement um up until if you had asked me on saturday i would have said that Stuart broad is just about public enemy number one in, in my cricketing brain. Uh, but similarly, I guess, for Ricky Ponting's retirement for all non-Australians, Stuart Broad's retirement has elevated him into the pantheon of great cricketers in my memory in my lifetime because he is absolutely public enemy number one when he's not on your team. But if you're an English fan, then he is absolutely the best guy to have in your dressing room because he's a pest. He is the guy who fires you up. And when he's on a roll, he is absolutely, he was absolutely irresistible. There was no better bowler in my mind in world cricket on a roll than Stuart Broad. He was just absolutely irresistible. And he could do things that very, very few other bowlers in world cricket could do. You know, Mitchell Stark, Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood included. Um, so he was able to produce those not just one ball of brilliance, but spells of brilliance that set him apart, I think, in a lot of fans' minds. And now that he's retired, I could say that I really like the guy uh, because when, when he was playing against Australia, I couldn't say that. But now that he's retired, uh, he's one of the legends. And, and boys, look, I, I promise we will talk about the actual game uh, soon. But I, th I think it also is important um, to look at now how, I, I guess, how much I think both teams needed that win because the optics from an outsider's point of view and, and look from I'm, I'm sure within the camps three, one Australia is very different to two, two to England with their moral victory, giving them the edge. So look, I, I think that, you know, I, I I'm fascinated to hear, let's go back to you, Baldy on, on, you touched on it a bit before about being deflated. What do you think the Aussies are actually feeling as they, you know, sit down with a drink separate to the English from, from what we've heard. Uh, although uh, if you, if you read Ben Stokes's tweets, maybe they met up in the club at about 4am. So hopefully they've all, uh, all uh, got together again, but yeah, what do you think Aussies are, are thinking about and reflecting back at the series now? Well, it's been a, a pretty intense six test match tour for Australia. So they went to India, uh, they went to England to play the world test championship final on the back of a tour to India that was mentally and physically draining for them. They've played a lot of cricket uh, for Australia overseas in the last few months. 
six test matches effectively back to back with a with a wee break in between. So I think there'll be a lot of mentally and physically tired bodies, particularly in their bowling cohort, getting back on the on the plane going home. Their batters have probably had a little bit more rest than perhaps they should have had. Um, so I think that there's a little bit of exhaustion there from an Australian point of view. But really, it was a missed opportunity to set themselves up from 2-0 up in the series that to then um, not capitulate, but but to not have any answers to the inevitable England onslaught and the inevitable England um, finding the right balance of aggression and circumspection. Australia just had no answers for that. So I think... Other than the media-led um, witch hunt around leadership and captaincy, I think there will be a few um, episodes of soul-searching for Australia as they get on their plane home and asking themselves some questions around you know, how they want to play their cricket going forward and do they really want to regain their mojo, their moxie of playing aggressive cricket, or do they want to be the side that is being seen to be boring and predictable and uninspiring um i mean despite having they've scored at three and a half or not three and a half 3.35 and over in this series with the bat on on in total which unless you're measuring it against england that's a that's a reasonable return i think their bowling is going to be the thing that they're going to have to pay some more attention to going forward um and there's some other talking points that i want to raise around around their fielding standards as well as we as we go through the pod yeah it's it's so interesting because I want to know, I mean, do you think we're holding this Australian test side up to an unfair standard? Because I, I know you you were fairly critical of them last week. They're, they're copping a lot in the media. But they have gone away from home. They've won the World Test Championship final. They've retained the Ashes. I, I think it's something like 20 years since Australia won an Ashes series in England, if if that's correct. So, you know, why why are they copying so much criticism? Because I think you said it before that it was a series very much of, of two halves. I think if you flipped the series around and England had won the first two tests and now we had a 2-2 scoreline, we'd be sitting here praising like this wonderful resilience of this Aussie side to retain the urns. So what do you think it is that's just grated on Aussies so much? Uh, two Two things for me. One of them is the style with which, or the lack of imaginativity, uh, which I coined the phrase last week, of of the way that they went about their tactics and their and their bowling plans. Right, I agree that it's very very difficult to bowl to a lot of those English batters when they are in a mood, when they are in a pomp. Like I said in the opening, how do you bowl to Joe Root when he can hit you over third man for for six and the third ball of the game with a reverse ramp? Very difficult to bowl like that. I mean, Jimmy Anderson was tremendously successful in his career bowling fifth stump channel, bowling dry, and then making the batsman make a mistake. Australia weren't able to do that. They weren't able to execute their plan A very well. And I think that their plan B was to be so um, negative. They were trying to find areas to bowl to slow the scoring down, trying to put places or players in the field to slow the scoring down, that they went away from their traditional identity of um, and the identity that their fans want them to have which is this side that is prepared to go toe-to-toe with anyone in any conditions. And yes, we may come up short on occasion, but we're prepared to go at the opposition and try and take them on at their strength and beat them at their strength. Australia didn't try to do that in this in this series. They conceded from the very first ball of the series England's advantage in terms of attacking style of play. And regardless of whether or not I continue to be triggered by um, members of the press um, spouting on about moral victories and Australia being scared and un- and all the rest of it. 
The fact of the matter is that England were the more aggressive side in this series, and Australia weren't beaten to that. They conceded that. The other thing that I think is um, going to result in Australia copying a lot of criticism is the standard to which we traditionally hold Australia um, in the field was far, far above what they produced in this series. And um, whether or not that's fatigue, whether or not that's a skill thing, whether or not they're not training correctly or appropriately to get themselves up to the standard that they need, Australia were well below the standards that we expect from them in the field in this series. Case in point, I think they had five missed chances in that first innings in the fifth test. Um, and that is that is very atypical for a, for an Australian side to miss that many chances, easy chances, um, both with runouts and with catching. Um, and that really is one of the things I think is going to be leveled as a criticism of this side. And it's going to, the, the shit is going to flow uphill towards Pat Cummins, unfortunately. But I actually think that Australia's got to have a look at the holistic setup that they've got within that team and are they putting themselves in positions to succeed? Because to me, if you have a look at the things that we've just talked about, we've talked about selection being a problem in this series. That is a problem for their coaching staff and their backroom. We've talked about their plans not being accurate and not having good plans to the opposition. England did a terrific job of that. Australia did not. That is by and large a coaching and analytics thing. We've talked about fielding standards. Fielding standards come from training. Where do you get your training from? Your coaching staff. I don't want to be one that's seen to be leveling criticism unnecessarily at Andrew McDonald and his team. I'm sure they're creating a great environment where everyone knows their role and is comfortable. But if you have a look at those three things, they're all coaching things. And they're all things that will come back on Pat Cummins because the leader of the Australian team, the captain, always gets the blame when things don't go right. But there's something that's not quite right in that setup for Australia because they're not taking advantage of their opportunities. They're not taking advantage when they get themselves into good positions in this test in test matches, a.k.a. how many times did Australia have four or five guys get starts in a test match and no one go past 60? I think it happened twice in this test match. David Warner had 10 scores above 20. The most of anyone in the Ashes, of any batter, didn't even get in the top 10 run scorers. Australia are not at their best mentally because they're not taking advantage of those tiny little, like, one percenters, if you like. And that's where I think all the criticism is going to be leveled at Australia. And it's going to fall, unfortunately, for Pat Cummins on his head. Because I think, in total, if you had have asked Australia, if we go to England and we win the World Test Championship and we come away 2-2, other than the fact that everything that's gone on around that has detracted from it, Australia should look back on that and say that we've done a really good job against a very good Indian side and a very, very good England side. Yeah, look, I I, uh, I have to agree with the criticism about the way that they adapted to the series. That's something I, I wrote down in my notes. Basically, you know, that I don't. I think that's the, the big thing that they should take away from this, that I think England really learned from each test and you know changed the way not necessarily changed the way they played but made selection decisions and and decisions about the tactics they were going to employ in that game throughout the series they you know uh, they look back at that declaration I'm sure in that first test and think there's absolutely no way we would do that again because of the way that they've then gone about the next tests and I think they learned from that and they kind of learned that they don't have to keep the door open for Australia to sort of give themselves a chance. They don't actually have to take risks because they're putting enough pressure on, they've put enough pressure on Australia in those first few tests that 
Australia sort of opened the door for them and said, look, you set the tone now and and then it's up to us. So, yeah, I do think that uh, England have done a much better job on on that tactical side. But Binksy, one of the things Baldy said there is Australia will look at it as a missed opportunity. Do you think England are going to look at it the same? I, I know that there's, it doesn't seem like they look back with any regret or, you know, that it's all positivity coming out of the camp. But it does feel like a missed opportunity for England because I honestly think they had, I mean, in the same way that Australia did have chances to win some of these other tests, maybe not that one that got rained off, but, you know, they, they had a great chance to win today. They were 146 runs, they needed 146 runs, seven wickets in hand. I think they were actually... In my head, they were, you know, in the box seat to win that game at, at lunch t- on this final day. But I think England could have won all every single one of those tests if, if uh, you know, if they're being hard on themselves. They had they had chances, and I think they should also look back at this and think, "Geez, we could have won these Ashes." I definitely think they look back and think they could have won the Ashes. There's no doubt about that. I don't think they're going to look back at individual moments. I think they will go away behind closed doors and look at probably some of those larger factors that Bordy alluded to really with the Australian team. So England's out cricket was poor um, in the first couple of test matches. I think, you know, we, we highlighted, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18 drop chances or missed chances, um, something in that ilk. And you can't afford to, you know, to essentially give away five or six uh, opportunities in an innings as Australia did um, in, this, in this game. And, you know, that's come back to bite them in the bum. Um, I don't think they're going to kind of come out and say, oh, well, we got that declaration wrong in the first test. I don't think they're going to go back and say we got selections wrong in terms of, you know, whether or not we should have played uh, Mark Wood earlier in the series or should we have played Johnny Bairstow and all those kind of questions. I don't think they're going to look at those individual moments. From an English perspective, just on the Australian, you know, scenarios and and, and, and Bordy, you know, alluded to a lot of these in his... uh, yeah, uh, hopefully pre-prepared monologue. Um, if it wasn't, it was very good off the cuff. But I, I think if I kind of reflect on when I've been most scared of Australia, it's been when their batting side has really sensed a chance in a game to really, really turn the screw and put pressure on. And and that's probably one of the things that Bordy didn't really go to town on. But when I look at the cattle that they've got there, they've got the likes of David Warner, Labashane, Steve Smith, Travis Head, with the exception of Mitchell Marsh in this series, who took it to England in that game where he got 100 quickly. Um, if we look at the first innings in, in this test match, um, Australia meandered along, um, seemingly in no, you know, no particular rush to kind of get on with things. They did it in the previous test match as well, um, where you know the openers seemed you know, really, really comfortable to just pl- plod along. And even when there was opportunities for them to maybe one of them put the hammer down um, and then even for a Steve Smith or a Labashane to put the hammer down. Travis had tried, but England had got really good plans to him. And look, he looked all at sea by the end of the series for me. They bounced him out for four games and then went, now nah, we'll nick him off. You know, I think they re- But I, I expected, as I expected Matthew Hayden uh, to come and bully us, as I expected Steve Waugh to up it a gear when he needed to and go into that one-day mode, when I saw Adam Gilchrist come in and just literally take you to the sword... I think there were two or three opportunities for Australia to do that in this series, um, and they didn't do it. Um, and for me, um, I, and look, I, I, I'm going to get so much stick in the YouTube comments for this, but I don't really care because I don't read them. Um, uh, it is, you know, I, I feel that that is the most un-Australian component of this set of performances. 
if we look at the bowling, the seamers, every single seamer, pretty much with the exception of Scott Boland and Jimmy Anderson, who looked pretty ineffective. But let's put this into perspective. Jimmy Anderson went at the lowest economy rate of the series for, on, on both sides. But if we took all of those seamers, Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, Broad, uh, Wood, Wokes, all of them had to back up and play multiple test matches back to back. Um, and particularly the Australian seamers had to do it where they were they were going up five and over and they were being pummeled. And the seamers, I think, can take a lot of credit out of this. But, you know, I, I think it's that batting approach for me where Australia missed a trick to um, to take a session away from England with the bat. And then they would have blown them out of the, a couple of the games in this uh, in this series. You did ask a question, Lippy, so come back, come back to that because I know I've not answered it. <laughs> I, look, I just want to touch on that because I agree with you in that Australia didn't capitalise on all the starts they got. I don't really care how quickly they score necessarily if Australia go on and get big scores, if they go on and bat once in a test match. So England batted once in the old, in the, no, which test got rained out? Whichever one, like they got 592, right? They got themselves into a good position. Someone got a big hundred and they got a big, big score and put Australia under a lot of pressure. Under in at no point in the Ashes do, did Australia put on a big score with the bat, have a big hundred from one of their top four, top five, and put England under any kind of pressure. Yeah, and um, look, I mean the the series averages tell the story. I mean you go you go through and look at those averages. The you know Marsh and Kawaja are uh, you know fifty around fifty, but look from then on it, it gets pretty grim for Australia. Smith, Labuschagne, and Heder in the thirties and. And Warner and Kerry are in the twenties, and then you you flip it around to the English, and you've got Crawley and Root over fifty, but then you've got Stokes, Brook, Bearstow over over forty, Duckett's there at thirty five, and and I thought actually, you know, he had some failures, but when he contributed, he contributed really well and and some important innings. So, yeah, look, I, yeah, I think that that almost tells you everything you need to know about how those two sides went, at least those two batting sides. And and actually, when you run through the bowling, it, it's, it paints a, a very similar story. And look, I'm not going to really let you off the hook there, Binksy, for, for that question, because we've talked, you know, there's been a lot about series or moral victories and and that and the scoreline of 2-2. Of and, and you were talking to me a little bit before that, you think two two is is probably not a, a fair reflection of the way the uh, the series went, but in saying that, that that was the series, and 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 I do think that's why it's a big missed opportunity for England, and not just the rain. I, you know, people are going to always point to the rain and go, okay, well they should have won that that fourth test. They were going to win it. They were on track for win it. They got kind of robbed. If if you want to take that story, that line. Fair enough, but but I think they should look back at this series and think we should have won this much more convincingly. And I think I'd like you to at least try and think about what in particular they they could have done. I know it's you know for you that declaration was a big thing, but really around what they will look back and think, what could we have done better to actually make sure we take these opportunities and win these games. Yeah, look, I think you guys will hopefully know me and, and some of the listeners and viewers will know me as well. I don't sit on the fence and I certainly don't tow the ECB party line on this on this podcast. But for once, I am actually going to side with the rhetoric that's coming out of the England camp around this. They're not looking back in hindsight. And if I pinpoint, you know, single instances, we'll be here all night because we can talk about the Mitchell Stark catch. We can talk about the stumping. We can talk about... Um, 
Stokes's catch today. We can talk about the change of a cricket ball. We can talk about that Australia batted more under lights than England did. We can talk about England won four tosses. We can talk about all of those things and, and make a pretty compelling argument for um, where the tide could have turned during the course of this series. What I think England will do, and I said this earlier on, is I think they'll look hard at the series. And I think that if they are going to look at a couple of components, that they're going to look at um, how much can they push the approach that they have. And I don't think you'll see Ben Stokes make declarations like that in the first innings again when somebody's absolutely flying. Um, so I think they'll have learned that lesson, but they're not going. You know, I don't think that that is a you know is is a factor. They were trying to see how far they could push the line, and that was how far they pushed the line in that particular Test match. I think they will ask a question around that out cricket. You know, were you know how do they put in? And you know, Kevin Peterson always used to say this: if I can turn up to the ground and know that I've done everything I can to make sure that I'm going to score runs, if I don't score runs, at least I can look myself in the mirror um, and know that I've done everything I can to prepare. I just hope they can all look back and say that they were all prepared from a cricketing perspective for those first two tests and they didn't get caught a little bit rusty with their out cricket. Um, if there weren't the miles in the legs for the bowlers and people weren't quite fit enough, I can forgive that because these guys play so much back-to-back cricket now, multi-formats, all that kind of jazz, that, that I'm not going to hang them out to dry on the fact that Mark Wood hadn't quite got his loads up or you know, Marin Ali's finger wasn't quite ready to bowl 17, 18 overs with the Dukes that you know, cut you to pieces because the seam is so, so sharp. But if they look back at their out cricket and they can't say that they've prepared properly, that might be one of the things that they might... Um, that they might consider. I do want to pick up on your point. You've made it a couple of times. Moral victory. I'm not. I, I just want to unequivocally say, um, and please let's timestamp this in the podcast so um, a number of our you know listeners and viewers can can actually reference this point. Um, at, you know, 19 minutes and 44 seconds. There, there, this is not a moral victory for England. There is an argument that both sides could have gone on and won the series. Um, I, for once, am going to actually say that I'm going to nail my colours to the mast and say on this occasion. I think if you look at everything that led into those first couple of test matches and how close they were and then how dominant England have been um, and how Australia have literally just sat in three games waiting for an opportunity. And in those three games, England have almost let them back in and, and, and given them that opportunity back. But in the three test matches, we'll never know what would happen to Old Trafford, um, but they're in a pretty strong position. But they've, you know, they've closed out two, uh, two games under a, you know, immense pressure you know, the, the kind of you must win scenario that we talk about in sport a hell of a lot of the time. So for me, you know, there's an argument that on the balance of Raj's momentum, um, you know, England, I think, have played um, the, the, a larger percentage of the better cricket. But from a scoreline perspective, um, you know, whilst the urn's not on Qantas um, back to Australia because it's in the Lords Museum, certainly the, you know, the, the moral... Uh, retention um, of those ashes is unequivocally with Australia. And they've had a fantastic tour um, with beating a very, very good India side um, in that World Test Championship final at the Oval in the early part of the summer as well. And I think if you'd have, if you'd have offered that to the Australian camp at the start of this summer, that you'll go home with the mace um, and you'll keep the urn, they would have bitten your hand off. Yeah, absolutely. But I do think... Uh... I guess it's why I thought it was important to to talk about why I think this game was really important, and and I do think that it, it's I think Australia will f- will feel this a lot more having not won that game because if they could have come out today and knocked off that score three hundred eighty four or whatever it was it was a massive score Kawaja and 
Warner did a great job getting them in a position. Smith and Head then picked up on it, put that partnership together. As you mentioned it, the, the Stokes fumble, it looked like, okay, maybe this is not England's day. And if they if Australia walks away from this 3-1 with the series, yes, rain intervened, all of that kind of stuff, it would have been a very strong case to go home and say, look, we were, we were the better side. All of this controversy and all these other things, we've put all of that to bed because we've taken our opportunities in those first two tests when they were presented to us. And look, we've chased down 384 today. And, and you know, obviously we talked about it a little bit, fairy tales. Moe Nali picked up some really important wickets, uh, which we might touch on a little bit later. But Binksy, I, I do want to pick up on one thing you said before you were listing all the incidents. We can't get through this without talking about that new ball because, you know, the, every Ashes test, and I think that from a neutral point of view, it's been... It's been fascinating to to see which controversy comes out of, of every single test match. And it wouldn't have been a, one of these Ashes 2023 test matches if we didn't have some controversy. The ball that England were using on that fourth day, Warner and Kawaja were just, you know, looking very, very comfortable. Doesn't fit through the ring, was changed. Then on day five, it just started moving all over the place. I, I do think the, the weather conditions, I'm sure, play a part in that, but... Ricky Ponting isn't happy, wants an investigation, you know, queue up all the Jeff Toovey memes, Baldy. Is this a big deal for you? Are you are you furious about this or is this just a storm in a teacup? Um, <laughs> Deep breaths. Breathe, Baldwin. <laughs> Look, sometimes a ball gets changed and it behaves differently to the ball that was being used prior to that. The only time that you change a ball is if it's out of shape and no fielding side has ever asked for a ball to be changed when it's going around corners. So the sometimes when you change the ball, the only way is up because a ball that's out of shape, almost by definition, can't do what you want it to do. And if it was doing what you wanted it to do, no one would ever ask for it to be changed. So um, that that in and of itself is nothing to complain about. And quite frankly complaining about the change of state of a ball is like complaining about the weather. It is not in your control. It is entirely in the umpire's control. They are experienced umpires. Um, If they reflect on it and they looked back at the condition of both of those cricket balls, would they say, "Mm, maybe we could have changed it for one that was a little bit older or looked a little bit older? Because regardless of the age of the ball, like they may have both been 50 overs old. They just looked very different and they behaved very differently. Like that's fact. Um, but it's no use getting upset about it because it's not in Australia's control. And the things that were in Australia's control were they were in a good position, they were 260 for three, and then lost 70 for seven again and were bowled out for 330. Like, that's in their control. The ball is not in their control. The media, yes, Ponting can get upset about it and everyone can get upset about it, you know, in the same way that Piers Morgan was apoplectic about the weather. But... It's not in it's not in Australia's control, and it's not something that they should be worried about. Would it would have would it have been an interesting conclusion to day five if Australia played with that same cricket ball? Possibly, but who knows what the result would have been? It certainly didn't change the course of the game in terms of the result. It just made it more interesting. Yeah, look, we've ticked that box. I, I um I tend to agree. Australia was in a in a very good position to win that game, even without the ball. And and look, we've had a couple of dips at Ricky Ponting there, but. I thought he was absolutely a de- absolute delight to listen to on this commentary. When him and Atherton were going, honestly, I could have listened to them for hours and hours and hours. 
both of them really, really good uh, cricket cricket broadcasters. I, I, I do just want to kind of point out on the, on the ball piece because um, it's it's a little bit of a cricket nuffy thing. It's a bit of a nuance, isn't it? The, the amount of times that both sides tried to get the cricket ball changed during this series and. Um, uh, you know, they get this protractor thing out now, and it's done. You know, 0.74% more in this session than the uh, since the ball tracking data became available in 2006. You get all of this insight now. But again, let's just be really, really clear. Both sides try it on to get a ball change when it's doing bugger all. It's down to the umps now to change it. It used to be they brought the box out, a box of balls out, and the captains would be there, and the batters would be there, and they'd all be sticking their two cents in. That's changed now, and it is literally down to the umpires to go through a numbered briefcase where the balls are ordered by the, the the age of them. Yes, absolutely. If Ricky Ponting wants to get crime scene investigation Miami in to uh, to launch a forensic investigation of where this has all gone horribly, horribly wrong by Kumar Dharmasena, then you know, please, please do that. But it's you know, it, it, it's got nothing to do with England and Australia. Um, they're always going to try that uh, try that particular trick when things aren't going their way with the uh, with with the red lever in hand. And the other thing to point out is this, this batch of Duke balls have been shit again. Um, you know, the, the, you know that they've you know they've they, they thought they'd cured the problem um, of last summer where the balls were going really really flat. They clearly haven't, and there's clearly still a problem with them. Um, and, and you know, one that will rage on and on, particularly as we use different cricket balls all over the world. Binksy, we'll we'll keep you on the line there for a second because I think before we uh, before we kind of look to a couple of the maybe the bigger picture things and and see if any of you guys want want to mention any other players, I, someone who did use the the Duke's cricket ball and, and ended up winning Player of the Series, and we haven't really talked about him at all, and I, and I think we we need to as Chris Wokes because you know I, I don't really have specifics too many specifics to say about him be, other than that I actually didn't think he'd play much of a part in this series. But he's been absolutely amazing. And I I still, every time I watch him bowl in England, I just have no idea why he's had no success anywhere else in the world because he just sort of has that that McGrath-like quality where he just does enough and he finds the edge. And, you know, he was, the, the spells that he was bowling on this fifth day, it was they were just fantastic. And like that ball to Warner to nick him off and, and th- he's sort of done that throughout the series. And, you know, we pinpoint the the moment that England kind of took charge of the series. It's in that third test where he comes in, when Mark Wood comes in. So, yeah, Binksy, I mean, anything else you want to add there on Chris Wokes? No, the warmly wizard. Um, he's from my neck of the woods in, in Birmingham. Yeah, look, his record in England is just sensational and, and has been for a long, long time. Um, and I think it's not just the vital wickets that he picked up. It was... It, you know, his ability down the order. He's a very, very good number eight, isn't he? He's probably, you'd say, a seven and a half um, in, in test match cricket. And look, yeah, really, really nice to see him win the, the player of the series um, award and, and really nice to see him do it alongside his mate um, and, um, you know, another Birmingham boy, Moen Ali as well, um, on their on their home grounds now, actually, because Moen Ali's gone back to back to Warwickshire, back to the... Uh, the, the the home of, of cricket in the West Midlands for sure. But yeah, fantastic from, from Wokes throughout the course of this uh, this series. And, and like you say, Lip, just when it went flat, he found a way to just get that little bit um, of nip at, you know, 83, 84 miles an hour. Fantastic from, from Chris Wokes and a really nice guy as well. You t- you mentioned Ali there. I actually, um, in, I, in my notes, I've written, uh, you know, he only had one half century, averaged 50 with the ball. 
But I think you could make a very strong case that he had more impact on this series than Jack Leach would have had. And, you know, even though at times he bowled some absolute garbage, but he took some key wickets, he scored some key runs, he retained the balance of the side when Stokes couldn't bowl. I mean, am I imagining this? Or do you, do you think that his contribution is is being undersold a little bit when you look at those stats? Um, I don't think his contribution is being undersold. I think he had a, a you know a fantastic game with the bat in, in Manchester with that half century. Um, I, I think volunteering to bat up at three did make the difference at Leeds as well, at Headingley. It, it kind of um, shielded Harry Brook for just that little bit longer. Um, and he obviously profited from that, played a really, really good innings um, on his home turf. And, and yeah, look, I, I think the, the problem for me really is obviously Moen Ali's not going to play test cricket again. He announced after this that if Stokes texts him again, he'll turn his phone off. Um, you know, he's nearly yeah, 30, yeah, 36, 37 years old. So he's not going to play test cricket again. What this really makes me wonder is, you know, would someone else have got the best and, and would Ben Stokes have got the best out of Moen Ali throughout it, the course of his uh, career? Because, yeah, from a statistical perspective, a batting average of just under 30 um, and, and a career bowling average somewhere around, you know, 37, 38, something like that. Um, even though he's got, you know, 200 plus te- test wickets and 300... Oh, 300,000, that would be fantastic. 3,000 test runs. And there's a pretty small amount of people who've done that, by the way. That, you know, um, is only the third England spinner as well, I think, behind Derek Underwood and Graham Swan to get 200 plus wickets. Yeah, look, really, really nice for him to bow out. Um, really, really nice for him to pick up, as you said, those key wickets, Smith and Labashane in that last uh, penultimate test match. Uh, not penultimate test match, test match, before, uh, the heading of the test match, I think. Um, yeah, really, really good impact on the series, and yeah, look, definitively probably more than more than Leach would have had. And again, that's great with hindsight, isn't it? Um, but yeah, a, a, another really, really good guy of English cricket. I think he would have enjoyed being in that dressing room throughout the course of the summer as well, uh, known as a bit of a, a practical joke, a bit of a prankster. Um, and yeah, look, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure they would have been trying to twist his arm to get on the plane to India. But yeah, I, I think it's probably a, a step too far for him. And, Bawley, I've got a couple of bigger picture questions to maybe wrap wrap things up. But anyone else that I haven't touched on that, that you wanted to give a, a mention to, positive or, or negative, from the Aussie's point of view? Oh, there's there's several players in this Australian side that have had a positive series. I mean, if you have a look, if you just have a look at the charts, Todd Murphy actually had a really good series against England. Uh, his strike rate was 32.8, which for an off-spinner is outstanding. Like, that is the best strike rate of any bowler in the series or any of the you know prime bowlers right uh, he averaged under 26 which again for an off spinner is very very good Nathan Lyon's career average is 29 30 ish um, and despite going for 4.7 runs and over he picked up key wickets as well he had a little Benno and in, um, in the first innings of this test match two for 22 and I thought he bowled really really well I'm um, sure he went under Joe Root's bat with one that ran along the ground but generally speaking I thought he gave a really, really good account of himself in this series. And he's one of the four or five guys here in my list that can hold their head up high. Mitchell Marsh, absolutely likewise. Australia have got a real selection conundrum now going forward because Mitchell Marsh came into this side for Cameron Green when he was injured, injured scored 100, um, batted positively, more so than any other Australian, averaged 50 for the series. No other Australian really did that. Um, yes, Kawaja averaged 49.6, so I'm splitting hairs, but you know what I mean. Um, so he distinguished himself as far as I'm concerned. And Cameron Green's 
underperformance in this series raises some interesting selection quandaries for Australia's test side going forward. Mitchell Stark, I thought, was excellent. He was outstanding against a side that was prepared to attack him and go after him. He struck at 33.4 in this series. And if you have a look at all of the strike rates of all of the bowlers in the series, that is also right up there with Stokes, with, uh, with sorry, with Wood, with Wokes and with Todd Murphy as being the best strike rate in the series. He averaged 27. Yes, he conceded almost five and over, but he bowled some absolutely unplayable balls as we expect him to do. And he really avenged being effectively an afterthought in the 2019 Ashes. Like he only played one test the last time he went to England. So to come out, be the leading wicket taker for the series across the four matches that he played and to strike at 33 in English conditions where it was reasonably flat some most of the time and England going after him. I thought that was just outstanding for him. Um, and, and they're the, the really the three or four and maybe Josh Hazelwood as well, who who distinguished themselves and, and played really well as on top of, of course, Usman Kawaja, who faced, I think, more balls than any other Australian opener since Mark Taylor in 1972 or whenever it was that Mark Taylor was, was playing. No, it was 89. It was the 89 Ashes. But, like, he did his job. Okay, it wasn't flashy, but he's faced more balls in this series than Duckett and Crawley combined, and he was really the only guy holding it together on a regular basis for Australia in that top four because the rest of them underperformed. Oh, there's yeah. Kawaja deserves all the, all the praise that anyone wants to give him, and I think I think he's yeah he's certainly deserved any plaudits he's got. I think your point on Murphy is is quite an interesting one because uh, yeah yeah we're we're getting late in the pod, so we won't go into it too much. But I do think that they, as well as Murphy went, I think it also highlighted how much they missed Nathan Lyon when he was not in this series because of the way, not necessarily anything to do with Todd Murphy, but more the way that they trust Nathan Lyon and to bring him on to bowl in certain situations that Murphy just never got those opportunities. And we talked about it in one of the previous tests about how he just didn't come on to bowl and, and even in that fourth test wasn't selected. So, you know, I, I think when Murphy, yeah, when, when Lyon went out of the series again was a, another sort of turning point in the series for, for the way that Australia sort of managed their bowlers and, and managed that, that seam attack. A couple of, I guess, bigger picture things to uh, to finish out the, the podcast, and and one of them's kind of a kind of a flippant one, but basically, I just want to go on a, a rant about it uh, and answer my own question. You guys can then, uh, you know, pick up on on anything you want, and that's all of this uh, this narrative about England saving Test cricket, and and have they done that basically? And and I think the answer is unequivocally no. Of course, they haven't. But I think it's it's worth pointing out that they have breathed new life into their own game and that fan base. You know, I'm not part of that fan base, but I'm. You know, you can just see from the crowds, from you know everything around English cricket, it's so much more positive, and it's definitely a more entertaining watch from from a neutral point of view. But you know, I think all of the saving Test cricket is is a bit much, and that's because world cricket is not it's not an equitable landscape. It's and it's it's really hard to ensure the test the survival of test cricket around the world if the format is framed largely around these three teams and you know yes it needs to be entertaining yes it needs to be entertaining enough that people need to pay and watch it but if the stadiums are empty and the viewership numbers are low in New Zealand or Pakistan or Ireland then I don't think those countries can argue that the format warrants the investment it needs and 
I think that's the other side of the coin that England needs to try and play a role on. If they actually do genuinely want to save Test cricket, I, uh, let me get, make this clear: they don't have to. It's it's entirely up to them. But I think all of this, you know, we are saving Test cricket and and we are doing all of this stuff to to change the Test game. I think it's very easy to do that, or not very easy because many it, it hasn't been done for for a long time. But I think it's a lot easier to do it and change your approach to the way you frame test cricket when you have an established infrastructure of tiered county cricket and minor counties and leagues that just most of these other cricket boards just can't replicate and don't have the money to replicate. And, you know, I think you've even seen Pakistan, Pakistan are playing puck ball or or whatever you want to call it against Sri Lanka. It's been incredibly successful, but you know, they're going to struggle to, we, we saw when teams went to Pakistan they can't get t- people in the stadium. So all of this saving test cricket, I think there's still a long way to go. And it it's much more multi-tiered. That's not necessarily on England. I think there's ICC, all of the things we've talked about. The fact that there's Sri Lankan Premier League on, there's El- you know the global T- T20 cricket, there's Af- Afro T20, the hundreds about to start. All of these meaningless T20 tournaments and T10 tournaments are, are going on. I think if we want to actually save test cricket and see how... England, England and Australia, this England Ashes series, has shown how good it can be, along with a number of other series in, in the uh, in the cricket world around this past year. But I think there's that we really need to do something to protect it, and just playing entertaining cricket is unfortunately not going to do it. Stu, I don't disagree with you um, broadly. I do just want to say one thing. England played 20 test matches roughly a year. They tour all over the world. They they go and play in Sri Lanka. They go and play in Bangladesh regularly. Um, they you know they've been to Pakistan recently, and the same as Australia. You know I've been and toured Pakistan recently. They do go and support that you know that global you know global infrastructure. So if they want to have a part of their ethos, which is that they want to take Test cricket around the world and try and entertain fans in stadiums that might not go and watch it we, you know we all talked about that West Indies India series where there's no one in the ground if England go to the West Indies and fill Bridgetown and Sabina Park and wherever and bring a little bit back um, I don't have any problem with them that, uh, having that as part of their mission statement but you're dead right it needs to be a collective that they're gonna um, a, a, as a group of boards particularly those big three boards um, you, you know, really sort of stamp test cricket on the calendar. And at the moment, what you've got is you've got Virat Kohli, who's unequivocal about his support for test cricket. You've got Ben Stokes, who's saying that, you know, the, the game is, you know, is really driven by test cricket. You've got someone like Harry Brook, who's just come out and said, he's, you know, he's going to sign a multi-format, multi-year deal with the ECB rather than go and chase the franchise money. Yes, he's going to have plenty of time to go and do that later in his career, one would say. And then you've got Pat Cummins, who, you know, really back backs Test cricket. Once one of those three big skippers falls out of the game, if you've got a guy that comes in that, you know, prioritises that, you know, the white ball format, um, yeah, it can't be held to one side to do that. So I, I don't think it's fair to necessarily crit- criticise any England rhetoric around them wanting to play a part in that. And I don't think that they think they're the saviour of Test cricket. I think what they're saying is it's tremendously important to us. We'd like it to be important to other people and we'll do everything we can in our power to, to make that part of our uh, part of our you know mission statement and uh, yeah I, I don't think they can be necessarily criticized uh, criticized for that yeah 
Yeah, I, I, I agree, Binksy. I don't know if I've ever read anyone in the England side or in the England setup coming out and saying things along the lines of we're trying to save Test cricket. All they've said is we're going to play as attractively as we can. We're concerned about what legacy we're leaving for ourselves and for the game after us, which is all positive stuff. All of the England are saving Test cricket. Test cricket needs to be saved. While part of that is true, Test cricket does need to be saved, sometimes from itself. Some of that, as Stu said, is structural. And I think the people who are saying those things aren't the people in the England setup. It's like a lot of the commentary around this series, a lot of the fuel for the fire for the keyboard warriors has come from not people inside the camps going at each other. It's from people outside projecting their views on these England on these England players and look I've I've got to say I might make some enemies on this podcast and potentially with some um some members of of the press I don't think that this series has been covered particularly well by either the Australian press I've had enough with Fox Sports I can't read Fox Sports anymore because it triggers me and by reading Fox Sports I then get the UK view which is effectively the red tops I shouldn't be reading that anyway because I know it's a trigger for me but some of the commentary around that is along the lines of what you're saying Stu England have saved test cricket well no they haven't cricket's still got the same number of structural and inequality pro- problems that it had 2 months ago now it has a side that is concerned about its role in test cricket and is doing something proactive about it that is a positive. Yeah, look, and um, I think probably you guys have summed it up better than I have in terms of that was not a, a not a dip at England. It was more a dip around the the that conversation about England, uh, you, you know, saving Test cricket. And Binksy, was there anything else you wanted to pick up on the media? Because I know you were a bit hot on them last week around the all of the way this stuff has been framed. Yeah, look, I'm just the same as Baldy to be honest. The mainstream media and. Um, I've got. I've got to be honest. It's, the BBC have really triggered me. Jonathan Agnew has been trying to get either Stuart Broad or Jimmy Anderson to retire for about the pl- past four years. You know, every interview he starts with them is, you know, how long are you going to carry on? Um, which really winds me up. The way he approached Ben Duckett after he scored a fantastic ninety-eight was, you know, you must be disappointed you didn't get the other two. He's been, um, you know, almost to the point where Ben, you, 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 you watch Ben Stokes go and interview with Jonathan Agnew on the BBC. And then you go and watch him interview with Ian Ward on Sky. Now, granted, Sky pay the ECB a lot of money for the coverage, so that, you know they've got you know there's always going to be that sort of argument that they're yes, there's you know some jobs for those guys. Stuart Broad's going to go straight into the Sky, Sky commentary box. I should hasten to add, he was already going to do that anyway. He was signed up for six months worth, or, or the, uh, sorry, this, the, the one day internationals that are coming up later this summer anyway. But I think you just need to see the way in which. The, the, the players have now got a disdain for the mainstream media in their respective countries, that they give short, sharp answers to those kind of stupid questions. You know, Pat, you must be really disappointed with the loss. Well, yeah, of course I am. Um, ben, you must be really happy with the victory. Yeah, of course I am. Like, what do, what do you want me to say? So look, I, I think that, yeah, the mainstream media, you know, coverage of it um, in terms of, yeah, the ABC, the BBC, um and yeah those kind of tabloid newspapers but let's not forget they're not here to cater for me you and michael they're here to cater for the guys that want to have a you know an argument about you know the ball change or the stumping or you know all that kind of you know all that kind of stuff down the pub and that's fine um that you know they're not you know they're not necessarily there to cater for that more nuanced view they're there to try and stir up that um parochial um 
I don't know, whatever it is, um, in a number of people, you know, that are going to sort of fuel some of those water cooler debates in a, you know, a multinational office, for example. But yeah, um, definitely, definitely one we'll, uh, we'll I'm sure, uh, talk about in, in future as well. Yeah, and, and um, yeah, f- full praise to all of our uh, very smart and uh, educated listeners that are listening to us and and, uh, and not listening to all of those oh, red tops. That was my point exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, and look, we've, we've gone an hour. Let's, let's wrap it up just uh, looking ahead, I guess. Bit of crystal ball gazing for each of you. How many players do you think from, from these sides are going to be in the next Ashes series? Because we've seen... This England side, I think for England, it's maybe less interesting now that uh, now that Broad is out and um, you know possibly and 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 Ali is out. Possibly, I you know I'd be very surprised if Anderson's there in two and a half years, but but maybe he is. But from an Australian point of view, I do think it's quite interesting. I think you know there's been a lot talked about how uh, a number of these players probably won't tour England again, but I think it's even interesting just to look look two years ahead and, and think about how many of them might be in that series because I think I saw that Todd Murphy in this last game was the only one under 30. Uh, and, you know, anyone who's listened to us for for a while will see um, from my New Zealand perspective uh, on players that are, that are over 30, I don't think that immediately means your, your career is over. But there are a, a few players on that side that may be starting to think about, I guess, the next phase of their career and, and their lives. So, Let's throw it over to you, Baldy, and then Binksy, you can you can finish this off and, and round out the pod. So I think there's a number of players that are good enough, still good enough if they if they still want to continue playing. So in that group, Stark, Hazelwood, Smith still, although I think he's on a, a bit of a wane, although he did score his 32nd Ash, uh, Test 100 during the series. So he's, he's, he's not, you know, completely past it. So Hazelwood is 32. So he should be, uh, he'll be 34 when the next... Ashes rolls around. He's fine. Stark's 33, so he'll be 35. Maybe his best days are behind him, but I think, you know, there's he's equally likely to turn into a Brendan Julian and being able to, you know, use a bit of craft in the back end of his career. So I think, you know, he's fine. Um, Nathan Lyon is 35. He'll be 37 and a half. I actually think he'll be fine in two years, but it, it all depends on when he wants to retire and if he wants to go out as uh, um, on his own terms or or when Todd Murphy effectively, you know, his star is on the on the rise. Um, Kawaja, probably not, but on the way he's going, he's still averaging 50 in this series. So um, I think only really David Warner is one that you would say absolutely not. What's going to be really, really interesting is what Australia do with guys like... Um, with guys like Mitchell Marsh in that middle order. Um, what do they do with Scott Boland? Michael Neeser is over 30 as well. And so is it is it the next generation that we look to? Um, players like Lance Morris, maybe Chandra Singer from Victoria, someone new and young and exciting to come into Australia as a 23, 24-year-old to give us a player for the next 10 years. Something to get excited about in the home summer. I love it. The uh, the the we should always look to the future. Man has said that every single one of the Australian players, except David Warner, will be there. I love it. I love it. Binksy, wrap us up, mate. Um, yeah. For me, look at who knows with this England team. Who would have thought Mo and Ali would have batted at number three in three of these Test matches? So um, I can't second guess what um, Brendan McCullum's going to do in two and a half years' time if he's still um, in the coaching uh, coaching seat. Lippy, a lot of background noise here, so you might want to wrap us up on the Top Order podcast um, this weekend. But look, it's been great to join in from Fiji. Um, look, I've got a pina colada with ice melting in that I need to get away to. So 
um, yeah, see your boys safe and sound back in Auckland in a few days' time. Yeah, look, and, and uh, I think that's a, a lovely way. I think anyone else uh, wants to wants to get a drink in their hand and, and hopefully have enjoyed this wrap-up. I'm sure this probably won't be the last time that we, we talk about the Ashes. Uh, plenty, of, plenty more cricket coming up, though. All these tournaments that we mentioned, New Zealand soon back in action. I'm sure everyone listening to us during the Ashes has just been hanging out for for more and more New Zealand content so uh, yeah rest assured you'll be you'll be getting that very very soon but yeah for tonight it's uh, it's good night and, and god bless from everyone here in the, in the top order and, and we'll see you again soon